Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. There were a few minorities in sports media when Terrence Moore began his career in the late 1970s. He helped to change that by paving the way for others with dignity, determination, and distinguished journalism. The National Association of Black Journalists once honored Terrence for being the longest-running black sports columnist in the history of major newspapers. That was in 1999. Terrence is still writing about sports and providing commentary on national and local TV, and I'm so happy that he's joining us as a guest from his home in Atlanta. Terrence, it's an honor to have you on our show. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Todd, it's great to be here, and I always like to talk to Ohio folks. I got that Ohio connection going. That's right. That's right. And I'm talking about an honor because, think about this, Terrence, you were once on the Oprah Winfrey show. Yes, <laughs> and, yes, indeed. And now you're on Press Box Access. So, you know, you either need a new agent or this is a testament to you being a super nice guy. And I know everybody Everybody knows you as a super nice guy, Terrence. <laughs> and, and you want to know, I, I mean no harm by this, Todd, but uh, you do not look like Oprah. <laughs> you, you kind of sound like her a little bit, but I mean, not really, but sounds Well, like I don't have as much money as Oprah, but you know. I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Well, you know, besides being a super nice guy, Terrence, you've had an incredible career. Everybody knows you as a talented writer and a uh, wise commentator, dating back since the late 1970s. I mean, you started out the Cincinnati Inquirer. You went on to the San Francisco Examiner. Then spent 25 years as a general sports columnist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And you're still cranking out columns, Terrence. For the past decade, you've been doing the Internet thing. It's amazing that you're still doing it. Yeah, I'll tell you, my motto is anybody that pays me, I will work for them. <laughs> uh, provided that they are <clears throat> journalistically sound. I'm also a visiting professor of journalism at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, uh, my alma mater, the good Miami, not the bad one down in Florida. <laughs> and those are the type of things I, I teach my students, too, is just to, to do what's right, what was taught years ago to me. Well, you pay forward, as we say here in Ohio, yes. by, uh, by teaching the students. And you've been a pioneer for African-American journalists uh, in your field. And you're still writing great stuff, still appearing on television. You write for Forbes, CNN, MLB.com. You're NFL Network, ESPN, CNN, MSNBC. I mean, it goes on. <laughs> Ter Terrence, you even have your own YouTube channel. Who in the hell does your taxes, Terrence? <laughs> yeah, you know, those are the type of things you got to be careful about. But, uh, but yeah, I, and, and, I, and I'll tell you, people ask all the time, well, when are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? And, and I always say, retire from what? Right. I mean, I've not worked a day in my life, uh, I'd say somewhat, uh, you know, uh, fun and like, but I mean, as you know, this is work, but still it's not like lifting things compared to what a lot of people do. It's been very enjoyable for me 
for all these, uh, what, 42-plus years as a professional sports journalist. And uh, as long as it's enjoyable, hey, well, you know, why do something else or just do nothing right. for that matter? 30 Super Bowls, Terrence. You covered 30 Super Bowls. Yeah. World Series, NBA Finals, Olympics, Final Fours, Indy 500, Daytona 500, and on and on and on. You were always a guy who was able to get close and get right there in the thick of the action. And I think about one night in particular in April 1985, and that's at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. You covered the incredible middleweight championship bout between Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Where were you sitting that night, Terrence? Todd, I was literally, and this tells you the difference, okay? This would never, ever, ever happen anywhere close to this again in the future. I was literally sitting right at ringside, right there. I I was no more than maybe six feet away from the ring because, you know, back in those days, they used to put us as close to the action as possible. And uh, and for the uh, you know listeners who may not know, you had that horrific uh, or terrific or whichever word you want to use first round where you had you know both of those guys just beating the snot out of each other, and it just went nonstop from the opening bell right to the end of, of that round. You know, you had Hagler Hearns just just pounding each other, and and you know we're right on the ringside just like just amazed. And I looked down at my shirt, and I had blood on my shirt. Really? Exactly. I mean, because it was just, we're, we're just so close. And, and, you know, and often I think back, I could have done a, the Monica Lewinsky thing and just, just saved that for years. And, and heck, I'd be a millionaire right now, you know, the wow. from Hagler and Hearns. So you were right there. It really, the, the first round is thought of as the maybe the greatest round in boxing history. Exactly. How, how intense was it? It's so intense when you watch a video of it. What was it like to be sitting six feet away? Here, here is the best way to describe it. And Todd, as you know, uh, you know back in the days when we, when we were like professional journalists, and not to say that that doesn't exist today, but really back then, the protocol was for, if you were a, a sports reporter, and it still is the same, you know, you know, you know you're in a press box, you're in a press setting like that, is to be sort of stoic and you know, you know, keep your mouth shut and just watch what's going on and just to observe. That is the first sporting event I ever covered where the sports writers were going crazy. <laughs> really? You know, and I just remember the, the guys all around, we were just standing up doing that first round, like, whoa, what's going And that was just unheard of back then, you know, because you, you know, that's when you just threw all of that stuff out of the window. It was just so amazing. We were reacting like everybody else that the, this is like one of the greatest things we've ever seen. You almost could feel the punches. It sounds like. Oh no, yeah, no doubt about it. You know, and, and uh, yeah, so it was uh, it, it was just just surrealistic. And uh, I'll tell you something else. You talk about Hagler. A couple of years later, later, Hagler fought uh, Leonard Sugar Ray Leonard in uh, Caesar's Palace, and and Hagler <clears throat> lost, quote unquote. He actually won the uh, the fight, but uh, they gave it to Leonard for a lot of reasons. And Hagler was very, very bitter for years. Matter of fact, he was so bitter, Hagler, he retired and to become an actor in, in Italy. Right. He went and to when Italy, he retired, yeah. no one thought they was going to retire for good, but he ended up doing it. But backtracking. So he loses that that fight, theoretically. And uh, again, it was at uh, Caesar's uh, Palace. And it was like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was just like walking through the parking lot. And, uh, and I see this figure in this empty parking lot in the distance. And I was like, who is that? And, you know, you get that reporter's instinct going, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious. So I move closer and closer and it's Hagler. Yeah, you know, this is like hours. Of, he's wandering the parking lot, you know, wow. and I'm thinking to myself, 
no, there's a story here. <laughs> so I'm just like watching him and just wandering. Apart. And then finally in the distance, there's this Budweiser truck. And there's a guy just unloading these uh, cases of Budweiser. I guess they're taking the Caesar's Palace to one of the restaurants or what have you. And Hagler goes up to the guy and asks if he could have a beer. Really? And the guy looks at Hagler and says, oh, <clears throat> you can have the entire case. <laughs> <laughs> As if I saw the fight, too. That, that was... Uh, that was one of the most remarkable things I've ever witnessed as a, as a sports journalist. Did you go talk to Hagler at that time? I did not because, you know, and, you know, this ties into, and probably people have heard this from time to time that, you know, if you're a, from a broadcasting point of view, you know, you have a great event, just let the event speak for itself. You know, like, uh, uh, and that became very popular in the early eighties with Vin Scully. I, I remember that was one of those situations Sometimes right. nothing needs to be said. My my thing was the the uh, just the scene itself was big enough. So describing all of that right there, that's a heck of a column. You know, Marvin uh, Hagler died on March thirteenth, and yes. uh, you know, and a lot of great tributes to him, and it brought back a lot of memories. You know, I was a big boxing fan, um, but I think this image of Hagler on that night is something that's going to stick with me. I know it has stuck with you because I think it shows uh, what these athletes, especially in boxing, what they put out there on the line, right? Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'll tell you something, Todd, and you can, you can relate to this. I think, well, I don't think I know. I learned something a long time ago in this business that the better stories and the more emotional stories and the more gripping stories are the one of defeat instead of a victory. Hmm. And I want to tell you when I really that really came to light. Um, 1981, March of 1981. This was the NCAA tournament and uh, the Mark Aguirre DePaul team. Do you remember those Bills College basketball right, teams? Right. It was considered a powerhouse in 1981. I, I believe they only lost one game uh, going into the postseason season. They were just picked as a steamroll right through uh, March Madness. And during that period, there was a stretch in the, uh, that started by UCLA in the 60s of you can just about tell who was going to win the national championship because it mm-hmm. was always like a dominant team. You had those UCLA teams. You had uh, the Bobby Knight teams in, in 75 uh, or 76 that went undefeated. Uh, uh, you, you had uh, the Kentucky team in 78. And, and, and so this was that team, that DePaul team in 1981, and their first game was at the Dayton Arena against a, a no-name team called St. Joe. Nobody had ever heard of St. Joe. Yeah, from Philadelphia. Team. Yeah. Right. You know, and I'm covering it. You know, just a, just a nothing game, you know, you figure. Uh, well, St. Joe upsets them on a layup in the, with no time left to win the game. And the thing that, was, that I'll never forget, that's one of the most amazing upsets I've ever seen. Because it was just like a five-second delay in a Dayton arena because everybody was like, oh, the Paul just lost. <laughs> and then there's like this, this screaming. Yeah, and the only th- first of all, you only hear the screaming and yelling from the St. Joe players, and then it's like the rest of the crowd. And I remember Mark Aguirre, the great Mark Aguirre, the guy who might have been player of the year that year. I think he was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he just takes the basketball, throws it up in the middle of the air, and then catches it and then runs out of the arena. And, and I was just thinking to myself, boy, this is a story here. And, and mm. Malcolm Moran, who was a writer for the New York Times at the time, sitting to my right, I said, let's go follow him. So everybody else is concentrating on, on St. Joe in the upset. 
And Malcolm and I are running up the stands of the Dayton Arena on a snowy day, cold snowy day, watching Mark Aguirre run out the arena. With the basketball. With the basketball, tears in his eyes, walking away from the arena. Wow. That was a story. Yeah. The story wasn't, St. Jo- as far as I'm concerned, that was a story. I heard he went all the way to the team hotel, right? He did. He did. And we followed him most of the way. But then it, it got to the point where it's like, oh, geez, we're going to go back and see, you know, uh, to what's going on in the arena. And and so there was two, there, 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 you had to make a choice at that point. There were two stories as far as I saw it. One story was to keep following him, which I could have easily done, or to do what I did. I, I got that part of the story and I went back. And I'm also glad I went back because when I got back to the arena, I didn't go to the St. Joe locker room because that to me, again, wasn't a story. I went to the DePaul locker room because that mm. was a story. So I, I get to the DePaul locker room and uh, Ray Meyer, who was the legendary coach of DePaul. He was about 150 years old at the time. <laughs> uh, he's outside the locker room door. And I have never seen anybody this pale in my life. Mm. I thought, I, and Todd, I kid you not, I thought he was going to die. He, he was like leaning against the wall. His hair just all frazzled. And he just like, it's almost like it was hyperventilating. And there's, there's a group of us around him almost embarrassed to ask him a question. We feel mm. so sorry for him. That was a scene. And certainly from a comedy standpoint, you didn't really have to ask anything, although people ended up asking. But to me, my column at, at that point was everything that I just saw. Right. And that's what I mean by like even the biggest events, you were able to find a way to get right there in the thick of it, whether it's blood flying in the front row at Hagler Hearns, seeing Hagler in the parking lot at three in the morning asking for a beer or seeing Ray Meyer you know, just devastated in the hallway after a monumental upset. You were there. You were right there in the moment and captured it. And I think that's something you did so well. You know, I I spent a lot of time wandering aimlessly (laughs) like Hagler. And here's an example, (laughs) Terrence. Here's an example. You and I covered the same event, the 1993, the game of the century. Oh, yeah. Florida's number one Florida State college football game at Notre Dame. I'm just a dumb kid who covered the game. You had much better access than me. Tell us about that. Well, let me set this up, Todd. Um, I was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, home of the University of Notre Dame. And I admit it, I've got blue and gold in the blood. And let, let, let me tell you something here, too, that uh, dirty little secret here. And I tell my students this all the time. There is no such thing as objective journalism. Because we're all subjective, because we all have backgrounds. Your objective to be the, as least subjective as possible. Okay, and realize where your biases are. And uh, Lou Holtz, I was the first person to interview Lou Holtz when he became coach at the University of Notre Dame back in 1986. But anyway, the game of the century, 1993, you had number one Florida State against number two Notre Dame, South Bend, Indiana, in uh, November 13th, 1993, as a matter of fact. Just a gray, cold college football day, you know. Perfect Newt Rockney, Gipper, kick him in the butt day. <laughs> Particularly since Notre Dame won. But anyway, <laughs> uh, what was interesting before this, and this is one of my all-time biggest thrills, I get a call on that Wednesday uh, from John Heisler, who was a great uh, sports information director of Notre, Notre Dame for years. I love John Heisler. And he said that, hey, uh, Lou is inviting you and a, and a few other guys over to the house uh, for, uh, you know, for, for, for a barbecue. And I'm thinking, uh, okay, I mean, when is this? I'm what, like in June, July? Hey, July? What are we talking here? Right. Yeah. And he said, uh, tomorrow. All right. <laughs> 
You kidding me? You kidding me? Again, let the reader, let's let the readers know that college coaches are the most paranoid people on the face of the earth. Okay, well, next to college basketball uh, coaches, and there is no way there is no once you get to Wednesday, these guys are in a total blackout for the rest of the week until the game time. All right, everybody, right. They, they don't even want to talk to the wife or the kids. Right. right? So just, just imagine this. So this guy's telling me that he wants me and some others to come to his house on Thursday. <laughs> Let me see, Friday, Saturday. That's three days before the game of the century to have dinner. I mean, it's, it's insane. Which and, and I'll tell you, so that was true. You get there, and Lou and, and, and his late wife, they're there, and, and uh, you know, as gracious hosts, you know, as if, you know, they're like the next door neighbors. <laughs> it was like a little game coming up on Saturday. I mean, yeah, it was just only the game of the century, Terrence. Only Come the on. game of the century. It was just unbelievable. The food was pretty good too. Yeah, I was going to say, well, how was the barbecue? Oh, it was good. It was very good. I mean, Lou fixed the the, the ribs himself. Not really, but you know, that's my story. <laughs> I'm sick of uh, but that's something I never will forget. And then, and I remember uh, at the end of the the the, uh, the day, at least for me, in the n- end of the night. I was uh, I was leaving and you know and, and again they were just like gracious hosts and Lou's leading me out the door and I'm standing at the door and I said well uh, Lou I, I said good luck to you guys on Saturday and he said well I think we're going to win I think we're going to win okay and and, uh, uh, and and they said we're, we're, we're going to give it our best shot of course they didn't win the game dramatically uh, but uh, yeah that was uh, that was in my top five favorite moments as a sports journalist well I mean let's think about this they did win. Yes. I was at the press box writing a story. You're still wiping the barbecue sauce off. <laughs> <laughs> From having dinner with the coach. That's the kind of access you got, oh. Terrence, and the kind that I was always <laughs> wandering around aimlessly looking for. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Lou Holtz was quite a character. I mean, he had, you know, the quips and the one-liners, and Lou was was something... He was also um, a guy that saw the humor in, in, in sports. And not everybody is that way. There are some maniacal characters, too. And you have met quite a few. I know during your time working in San Francisco, you had a few. I mean, even you well, let's think about it. You covered the, the Niners, the Raiders, the A's. Yes. And, um, and the Giants. And you had some Raiders. One that comes to mind was John Matuzak, the twos. Ooh. <laughs> he actually was in the movie Caveman, you know. Yeah. So uh, you had a little run, and in also the the longest yard or the last year. What's the thing? Is the longest yard or the last yard or something? Like longest that? yard, longest, longest yard. yard. Yeah, right. But you actually witnessed uh, John Matuzak in one of his great moments of maniacal <laughs> behavior. Tell us about that. Well, there were more than a few, but one of the most striking ones was uh, it was like in the early '80s, and I'm covering them. And uh, that was a wild and crazy team, to say the least. They were very good. But uh, Lester, Lester Hayes, uh, the great cornerback, used to tell me, he says, uh, you know what? He says, 
we we work hard and we play hard. That's an understatement. <laughs> but anyway, we're walking out of the uh, uh, we're walking out of the, the practice facility one day up in uh, in Alameda, and uh, John Matuzak was <clears throat> quote playing around with one of his teammates and told his teammate that he was going to give him a head start. And I'm right behind the teammate that he's referring to, and I'm thinking, so what does this mean? And uh, the guy was saying, stop playing, John, stop playing. And, and so all of a sudden, John pulls out a magnum and points it at a stop sign in the distance and just blows off the top of the head of the stop sign. <laughs> and yes, his teammate started running. And I started running the other way, like, this guy is nuts. So <laughs> yeah. he wasn't the only one on a team carrying a gun. No. <laughs> well, it must have been something about Oakland because there were there were a few <laughs> other people in Oakland in that time when you were covering sports. Yeah. One of them was Billy Martin. Oh boy. You know, who who really was was Ooh. known as a five time or six time manager to New York Yankees. They, you know, he was like a spinal tap drummer. They kept blowing him yeah. up and he'd come back. But Billy was actually managing the A's when you covered that team. I think there was a moment uh, when you met Billy, or yeah. in his manager's office, and uh, they they weren't they weren't sharing food then, were they? The only problem I had with Billy Martin, I'm going to get to the story you're talking about here in a minute. The only problem I had with Billy Martin was, and, and Billy Martin was, I guess now they would call it attention deficit or whatever. I just call it crazy. <laughs> he was crazy. He was absolutely he was nuts, and uh, and particularly after losses. All right, I mean, oh geez, he, he was just bad. After, I mean, he was just despondent. And so there's one particular loss, uh, Steve McCady, McCaddy, the starting pitcher, had a bad game. And uh, I worked for the San Francisco Examiner, the evening newspaper. So I usually would kind of come in late to kind of get a secondary type of story angle. So I go into Billy's office. He's got sitting out behind his desk. And this is after he had held this joint press conference with other writers. And I said, uh, I said, Billy, so I guess Steve just didn't have it today. Billy just literally jumps over his desk jumps over really? his desk. I'm sitting <laughs> at a couch in front of him and he stands in front of me and just starts spitting and yelling, thinking about fastball, fastball, fastball. <laughs> I started to throw the fastball because there were some other adjectives in between them. But anyway, I just had to get this ground <laughs> off my chest. But anyway, the story you're referring to was, it's like 83, 1983, Billy had signed a, a contract about the year, year before with the, the A's and he wanted to re- renegotiate the contract, and the A's wouldn't do it. So it was after a game, and, uh, you know, we get to the uh, to, to his manager's office, and Billy's not in his office, but the office door is open, and it's just, it, it's just torn apart. I mean, there's holes in the wall. I mean, it's just like – it's almost like a, a, a Michael Meyer from Halloween – you know, you remember the horror guy? It was like he had his Wait, knife. Hold on a second. You got Lon Chaney and you got Michael <laughs> Meyer. Yeah, it was like he had taken his knife and just like just was just turn up pictures and walk. it was just, it was a mess. And then, of course, everybody knew what happened. Billy had just torn up his office because he was so upset. They didn't get this contract re- re- renegotiated. And, of course, he gets fired soon afterward for like the 20th time of his career. Right. So, anyway, it's the year after that. I'm at Yankee Stadium uh, covering a Yankee game, and uh, Art Fowler, who was Billy's uh, <coughs> drinking partner, uh, well, actually, it was a pitching coach disguised as a drinking partner. Or, well, that, or was, that was the way it was, right? The manager would have a so-called you know coach on the staff who basically was just out to 
you know, buy the drinks and drink with them. Yeah, you know <laughs> how, that, how that goes. And our art follower was that guy for Billy. Okay. okay. Good old boy, art follower. I think it was from North Carolina. But anyway, so we're, I'm at Yankee Stadium in the dugout and batting practice is going on. And I see somebody waving at me in right field. Again, this is the kind of stuff that doesn't happen anymore, by the way. So I was like waving at me to come over, you know? And I knew some Ray Yankees back then, like Reggie Jackson, for instance. He and I have always been pretty close. So, but it wasn't Reggie Jackson because this guy was a little lighter than Reggie Jackson. Okay. So, so I'm looking up there and I'm just like looking around. And so I start getting close to the alpha and it's Art Fowler. You know, the mm. pitch coach, pitching, he was a pitching coach with Billy in Oakland. Everywhere Billy goes, he was a pitching coach. And he was with now the pitching coach for Billy with the Yankees. And uh, with the A's, I had talked to him a few times, you know, nice. Good old boy, for the most part. So he calls me to the outfield, and I'm saying, <laughs> outfield doing batting practice. <laughs> and he says, hey, he says, you remember about Billy's uh, office being torn up last year? I said, yeah. He said, Billy didn't do that. Said, really? <laughs> he said, that was done by Cleet. He's talking about Cleet Boyer. Cleet Boyer was Billy's uh, <laughs> third base coach. He said, yeah, Cleet did it. You're know, blaming somebody else. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Who's playing Cleet Boyer on the? So he's throwing, he's throwing Cleet Boyer under the bus because he and Cle, he and Billy had a falling out. You know, Cleet Boyer, the old Yankee, and of course Billy Martin, the old Yankee, whatever. So it was it was great for me because it was a front page story for the, the San Francisco Examiner. You know, uh, that next day and and the front front page. You know, Art Fowler talking about Billy and that kind of stuff. So. Again, those are the type of things that we can't do anymore. Have somebody call you in the outfield. First of all, you're not going to get in close to being on the field at any time. Right, right. Well, Terrence, you seem to have a calming effect on a lot of <laughs> notable hotheads. <laughs> I'll tell you this quick story about how I first met Woody Hayes. I'm up at uh, this is uh, after he had punched uh, <laughs> the Clemson player in December 1979, 78 rather. At the uh, uh, during the Gator Bowl, and it's about six or seven months later, I'm up in Columbus, Ohio, and I turn a corner uh, of a particular building, and I literally bump into Woody Hayes. I mean, just almost knocked him over, and I apologized, and he asked my name, so he said Terry Moore, and he said, "Oh, you're the old center fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals." I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I was, was going to roll with it, you know, and we just you know, it was pretty good. And I said, "Well, hey, you got five minutes to, to talk, coach?" He said, "Sure." And I said, well, I need to let, let you know that I'm a reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer. And he kind of he kind of got kind of tight lip, you know, tight face and everything. He said, you asked for five minutes, I'll give you five minutes. And it was exactly five minutes he gave me before he said, all right, your time's up. But when I told him I was from, you know, went to Miami, Ohio, I was like, oh, oh, oh. So from that point on, that was uh, in uh, 19, 1979, uh, May of 79, we had a pretty good relationship. But getting to the phone call. So I'm coming to Indianapolis 500. This is like in the mid-80s. And I called up uh, Woody and I told him, uh, you know, hey, I'd like to come and do interview you in Columbus for, you know, just do a story with you. He said, sure, you know, we'll have lunch. You know, come on, come on up. And uh, so it's that Sunday of the Indianapolis 500. And Todd, as you know, there's this weird <clears throat> humor when it comes to us as sports journalists. And uh, my colleagues, some of my, my colleagues are kidding me, saying that this interview is never going to happen. Woody's going to die before the interview. You know, mm. just just funny around, right. you know. Right. And uh, so anyway, it's that Monday, or that Sunday night rather, and word comes out that Woody had a stroke or something mm. of that nature, and in Ohio, back back in Columbus, there goes that interview. Next day, I'm getting ready to leave my hotel room. The phone rings. 
I pick up the phone, and this is back in the old days when you when you can tell long distance, you get that long distance kind of haze in the background, blah, blah, blah. And this woman says, hello, she says, uh, uh, this is so-and-so of the Ohio State Hospital. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't know where yeah. this is going. And she says, um, could you hold the phone for Coach Hayes? I'm like, this has got to be a joke. This has got to be a joke. So I wait a few seconds, and the voice on the other end says, hello, uh, is this Terry? I, I I said yeah yes yes it's Terry this is this is Coach Hayes uh, I want to apologize for getting sick on you mm. can we reschedule That's incredible It really was I've read about that several times but I'm, I'm telling you that's the side of Woody Hayes that people don't see Amazing That's amazing Yeah it really really was that that was just one of the most fascinating things I've ever encountered And of course that was the last time I ever talked to Woody Hayes because he died. Uh, about a year or so after that, or within that year, perhaps. I was at his funeral, though. It was held up at Upper Arlington, uh, Ohio. And uh, that was one of the most interesting uh, funerals I ever covered. Uh, I was one of the few reporters that was allowed there. They didn't have very many reporters, and you had to sit up in the balcony. And uh, they had the stipulation that you could not bring in any electronic devices. So... Mm. I brought in some electronic device. Oh, <laughs> Terrence. Don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> no, we're not telling anybody. Don't worry. And you know what? I can't find that micro cassette tape to this day. No. I put it somewhere. And what it is, it was Woody saying, they told you not to do it. This is Woody telling me. <laughs> this is what you get, young man. This is for breaking the rules, Terrence. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you broke the rules that day, uh, but you also broke down a lot of barriers for African-American journalists. I mean, when you came through in the late 70s, you know, it was pretty much mostly white people in the press box. And I was re- always been curious about what it was like for you to be a pioneer in that setting uh, how were you received uh, when you started out as a professional journalist in the late 70s? Yeah, you, you know, and that, that's an interesting question. And, and that was good and bad. The good was I started out at the Cincinnati Inquirer, and it was fantastic there. I, you know, I had no problems at the at the Inquirer and, and just, uh, just had so many great guys. Boy, they, they were like, it was old-time newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that part of it was good. Uh, but at the same time, you could feel the friction because – I had two things, two things going against me, and not only being a black reporter, I was the first black sports writer in the history of the Cincinnati Inquirer, which has been around since 1840. I was only the second black writer in the history of the Cincinnati Inquirer, period, of any kind. Wow. And, um, and I ended up being the uh, only the second black person ever to cover Major League Baseball on a regular basis. And when I covered San Francisco Giants, I was the first black person to ever to cover the National Football League on a regular basis for a major metropolitan newspaper when I covered the Raiders. First black columnist in the history of the South. Columnist, for people who don't know, that means I was the first black person allowed to write his opinion about sports right. in a major newspaper. And, uh, and currently, I'm uh, the longest-running black sports columnist of major newspaper in history. Yeah, the National Association of Black Journalists, um, you know, they in 1999, they honored you. Yeah. Saying you were the longest running black sports columnist in the history of major newspapers. That's just and I went on for another amazing. 10 consecutive years. That's never going to be broken because, as you know, the way newspapers are declining, that's not going to happen. And, cause, and there aren't, aren't virtually no or very few black sports journalists columnists now. But go back to answer your question. There, there were knuckleheads, no doubt about it, here and there. I, I, I could just remember... 
Uh, the first of the worst I had was my second year at the Cincinnati Inquirer, and uh, I was the backup guy on the Big Red Machine. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was actually given the beat. The guy named Ray Buck was the, the beat writer, and uh, Ray was always great with me. And uh, so uh, the first series, uh, they were playing the Giants opening, ironically, because I ended up coming to the Giants the next year. Uh, the first series was against the Giants opening day, and you know how big opening day is, is in Cincinnati. And uh, so Ray was going to cover that first series, and I was going to take the next series. But Ray got sick before the second game of the of the season, mm-hmm. and said, "Well, you got to cover, you know, cover, cover for me." And boy, you're talking about tension. I and mean, this was back during the uh, the days when uh, you know you had ten thousand people covering the Reds because it's a big red machine. Newspapers were in, at the heyday, so it was a packed press box. They say I'm the only black person that's there. And, and, and then, uh, you know, it's the second game of the season. And you know how that worked back then. You got to write uh, two stories before the game. You got to write the running and notes and everything. So I'm under all this tension just to get all that done. So I'm sitting in the press box, and it's like they played 8 o'clock games back then, and it's like 20 minutes before game time, and I'm feeling pretty good because I just got in my last pregame story. Mm-hmm. And uh, one particular writer who you know, uh, <clears throat> comes over and stands next to me and looks around the press box. And, and then I just noticed it was very quiet. So it was like this was a setup, you know, spoiler alert. And then the writer says, so where's Ray Buck today? Mm. And uh, somebody to my right, a couple of places to my right says, oh, he's off today. Then the, then the writer standing next to me says, well, who's going to cover for the Inquirer today? Oh. And then somebody in the back says, uh, Terry Moore. And then the writer standing next to me says, oh, this ought to be effing interesting. Oh. And then, the, then they started laughing, you know, uh, just, just laugh. People, people just started laughing. There is a guy named um, Meyer uh, for the Dayton Journal-Herald. And I, uh, I'm so embarrassed. I should know this guy. I think it was Paul Meyer. Paul Meyer. Paul Meyer. Yes. I should remember his name forever because Paul Meyer, not only because of what I'm going to tell you, but because I – Talked to Paul Meyer many times through the years. Yeah, Paul Meyer gets up from his seat, comes over, puts his arm around me, and this was similar to what happened in 1947 with Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson when Jackie Robinson was being heckled in Cincinnati, ironically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Paul Meyer puts his arm around me and says, don't let the bastards get you down. Wow. If you ever need anything, let me know. Oh, good for him. I always remember that. So wow. there were a lot of those type of incidents. There were always these little things, little jabs. But if you put them all together, they were pretty significant. And if you weren't a strong enough person, uh, they could have been very detrimental, particularly being being a Jackie Robinson. I was a Jackie Robinson, and, there has, and I have been a Jackie Robinson, a black journalist. Well, when you left San Francisco to in late 1984 to go to Atlanta, where you still live, I and mean, you, you end up spending 25 years working for the uh, Journal Constitution, you went as a sports columnist, and like you said, you're writing your opinion, right? And you're in the deep South. I mean, all sports writers have to have tough skin. We all used to get like nasty letters and comments. I never had to deal with the racial stuff. How did you handle those attacks? How did you handle that? in your career as a, as a columnist in the deep South? First of all, it was pure hell. And for me to look back and see that I survived 25 years and it was nonstop. Uh, it was a miracle. And, and and the first part of your question is being a Christian, being a spiritual person, 
uh, that right there was a huge part of why I was able to survive. Uh, no question about it. The other reason I was able to survive was right from the get-go, I had uh, some very great support from some legendary guys. Uh, the first week I was at the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the first call I got from, was from a guy named Andrew Young. Oh, wow. And Andrew Young was the second black mayor in history of Atlanta. Andrew Young was a former uh, UN ambassador to the United States, uh, former uh, congressman, and, and most importantly, he was a lieutenant under Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Right. Uh, one of the second calls I got was from Maynard Jackson. Mm. Maynard Jackson was the first black mayor in Atlanta, one of the first black mayors in the history of uh, of, of this country. And uh, so I had the civil rights icons that were helping me. Hank Aaron, who I became very close with, uh, he was a very supportive. So I, I had people along those lines that were very helpful. Um, and then I also had the other thing, the background of having worked in uh, San Francisco for five years and Cincinnati for three three years, where I had uh, uh, basically this uh, resume of competence. So the problem that they had and the problems I were having were not only outside the paper, but also inside the paper. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. a whole other story. But there was a dilemma that they faced. They could not say that I was incompetent because I won too many awards nationally and locally even before I got there. Right. So the only thing that they could do when I say they, I'm talking about all of them, the only thing that they could do was try to terrorize me to the best of their ability to hope that I would leave, which I was not going to do because I felt that it was my responsibility as a uh, Jackie Robinson in the business to make it work. And uh, that's what I did. But it was not easy. What did they do, Terrence? What was the worst? Uh, there are so many worst. I can't even, uh, describe them. Uh, and uh, there was sabotage. I had, sa- I had people sabotage things that I was doing. Uh, and I don't want to get into any detail about that right, about, right now. But uh, trying to ruin my career with different things. And luckily, there were enough people that I had dealt with in the business through the years that understood what was going on. So that was that was very uh, uh, helpful. It, it, it was tough. I mean, and, and, and I want to tell you one thing, too, to balance this out. The I somewhat expected some of the issues I would have with whites when I came to the South, giving my opinion, but it was way worse than I could have possibly imagined. I'll give you more, I will give you an example in a minute, but I'll tell you where I'm going with this. But what I did not respect was some of the resistance I got from black people hmm. because I discovered being a guy that grew up in the Midwest, there was sort of like a, a slave mentality that was going on. I, I remember the first few weeks I came to town and, and I've always really had the same writing style. And my writing style is very direct. I gave my opinion and then I support what I'm going to say which was unusual here in the South, black or white, and to be a black person giving a direct opinion, you know, eh, a little dicey. So I, I would be in a, a restaurant or a barbershop, and a, black people would come up to me saying that, ah, I, I see what you're writing, man. You're going to get us all shot. Mm. Where they were almost uh, offended that I was writing tough things. So I was kind of getting it from, from both sides there. Um, uh, I had people coming up that would just yell at me on the street about what I was writing. They would drive by in cars yelling things. I would have, uh, when I first started in Atlanta in the 80s, there wasn't sports talk radio. That hadn't been big then. Mm -hmm. But 
talk, talk radio was still big. You just had the news talk radio shows. So it was routine for the, uh, for the talk radio people, people to devote an entire day's show to Terrence Moore, that black guy for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, hmm. writing all this racist stuff. And racist stuff to them was me giving my having the audacity to give my opinion. Wow! And uh, just talking about having him fired and, and stuff. It was just uh, it was rough. And yet you kept going. That's what's amazing. I mean, you. you yes. I mean, besides, you know, besides being a great guy and being so talented, you know, to have the persistence and the determination and the strength to do your job the way you did it all those years. It's just so admirable. I've always wanted to tell you that. Well, I, I certainly appreciate that. Well, you certainly broke down the barriers and paved the way for so many, you know, young journalists now. Thankfully, we do have a much more diversified media. We do have the the perspectives of African-American journalists and, and others non-white. And I think a lot of that just goes back to the toughness that you had. And, um, you know, you mentioned a guy who supported you from the get-go in Atlanta um, and he's a guy who also could relate to some of what you were dealing with. Um, and that's Henry Aaron. Yes. And, and Hank, uh, you know, Hank died on January 22nd. And again, a lot of great tributes, but you knew Henry Aaron way beyond, you know, the tributes, you knew what he dealt with, especially in 1974 oh, yeah. when he was on, on the way to breaking Babe Ruth, when he did break Babe, Babe Ruth's home run record. But you got to talk to Aaron Many, many times uh, over the last 40 years. Tell us tell us about your relationship with Henry Aaron and why that was so special. Well, you, you know, and again, not to bury the lead, I'll just get right to it. Uh, one of the biggest thrills I had, which was an unfortunate thrill, and maybe thrill is not the right word, I should say honor, was uh, the day that, that Hank died, I got a call from Billy Aaron, his uh, widow, who asked me to be one of his honorary pallbearers. So I go from that to being a person who talked to Hank Aaron more than any sports journalist in history to being his honorary Paul Bear. That, that was just fascinating. And, uh, yeah, we had a very good relationship. I mean, he'd call me up, and and I'll just I'll tell you this, Todd. Uh, during the uh, Barry Bond situation, for instance, he wanted nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I became his designated spokesperson <laughs> and everybody knew it. I mean, I, and, I and, to be clear, and to be clear, we're talking about the whole steroid uh, angle, yes. you know, that story. And, and Aaron really, like you said, stayed away from commenting about that. That's exactly right. So I, matter of fact, uh, uh, and I can't think of his name, but one of the uh, legendary writers for sports illustrated wanted to do a story with Hank Aaron about Barry Bonds. Couldn't get Hank. Cause Hank was just dodging, dodging it. So he ended up talking to me. About Hank and what he thought about Barry Bonds, so it was like that, and so so this went on for like a whole year or so. So whenever I would appear on television, ESPN or uh, CNN or whatever, uh, Hank would call me up, or I'll call up Hank, and Hank would like laugh, like, "Hey, I saw you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did a good job. Yeah, that's what I would have said. Yep, uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what, the kind of relationship we had. What did you respect most about Aaron? Well, what I respected most about Aaron was. And we were alike in so many ways, which is why we got along very well. He was a man of deep convictions. And and because of those deep convictions, a lot of people sort of misunderstood what he was all about. And uh, and, and what I meant by that is I 
you know, I've written columns about this since his death. Uh, people are trying to rewrite history now, and and I find it offensive uh, because they're trying to make it seem like, okay, was Hank Aaron a nice guy? Oh, no doubt about it. Was he soft-spoken? Yeah, he was. Was he a guy that uh, that uh, smiled a lot? Yeah, uh-huh, that, he was all that. But you know what? He was tough as nails. Mm-hmm. And when he had something to say, particularly when it came to racism and baseball, racism in general, he said it boldly and, and loudly, okay? And now what's happened over the last few years, people are trying to make it seem like, oh, he was like this docile guy and so on and so forth. But they don't remember because I was there because usually when he would blast baseball or society, I was a person that would be a spokesperson or get it out there, either mm-hmm. in print or on airways. He was being ripped like crazy by people, okay? Fans in general, the media, some of the same writers talking about, oh, well, Hank was such a nice guy. Well, you weren't saying that <laughs> 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and I and I call it the Muhammad Ali thing. And I've written about this before, too. Muhammad Ali was a guy that during the last 15 to 20 years of his life, it was like, oh, what a great guy. Blah, blah, blah. People want to pose with him, and particularly yeah. white folks. You know, they, they looked at him as being this, oh, he's such a great guy, so on and so forth. So wait a minute now. I'm old enough to remember <laughs> when I was growing up, because I grew up in mostly white schools, hearing white folks call this guy everything but the son of God. They hated this guy, okay? Right, right. And all the way through. So what was the difference? What, what happened with Hank and what happened with, with, uh, with, uh, with Muhammad Ali? It was very simple. What happened was when they, and, and this happens with a lot of black people in general, unfortunately, once you become harmless in the eyes of certain whites, then it becomes fashionable to rally around them. Once mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali was unable to basically speak, he had the Parkinson's disease, and and he was just like mugged for the cameras. Like you know, once he became that Muhammad Ali, then all of a sudden he's a great guy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Once Hank, Hank never became feeble per se, but once once Hank was sort of out of the spotlight that he was before in his earlier days with the Braves. And they, they just saw him smiling or throwing out the first pitches at games or waving uh, from uh, uh, from the owner's box or what have you. Then that became that became the Hank Aaron that they wanted to remember for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And and one more thing along Hank Aaron's line, Hank and I've written this many times before. Hank Aaron, his idol was Jackie Robinson, and Jackie Robinson. Everybody thinks about April fifteenth, nineteen forty seven, and they forget about the rest of of Jackie Robinson. Right. Jackie Robinson was LeBron James way before LeBron James. He was talking about outspoken. Oh, my goodness. I mean, he marched with Dr. King. He spoke out against uh, injustices. His last speech, Jackie Robinson, I'm a Jackie Robinson uh, enthusiast, as you can tell. His last speak, October 1972, before game two of the 1972 World Series in Cincinnati, baseball thought they were doing Jackie Robinson a favor by honoring him, you know, mm-hmm. because it was a – that one of the anniversaries, maybe I can't do math that fast, 25th anniversary, I guess, of him breaking the, the color barrier. And uh, so instead of giving this nice farewell of a baseball speech, in something like 35 seconds, uh, Jackie rips baseball for not having a black manager up to that point and not having a black third base coach, which would lead to being a black manager. Hmm. I mentioned that because a couple of weeks after that, Jackie Robinson died. Yeah, And that's when Hank Aaron said, you know what? I am going to take over for Jackie Robinson. I am going to be the guy that speaks out like Jackie Robinson did. And that is exactly what Hank Aaron did. And he did it forever. And people disliked him strongly for that. Mm -hmm. 
He was like the conscience of the game. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Hey, Todd, I can tell you you're a columnist. That, that's a good for I like that. I'm, I'm going to steal that. That's good. Right. That's, that's all right. Was. That's all right. You know, I mean, yeah. the tape recorder won't work, right? <laughs> you'll, you'll lose the cassette. <laughs> exactly. Well, Terrence, uh, Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron, they did yeoman's work, uh, paving the way in athletics. And, and you did the same in, in sports journalism. And I mean that uh, wholeheartedly. Well, thank you. I mean, your career has been amazing, 40-plus years. You're still writing great stuff. You're still on television. You have the highest-rated local TV sports show in Atlanta on the ABC affiliate every Sunday night. I yeah. mean, Terrence, you're like an amazing industry of yourself. You know, it's like you, you should just have a big satellite dish and walk around. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what, I, what I mean by this is it's an honor, really, to have you on this show. I know how busy you are. And to grant us the time and the perspective uh, has been a real treat. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Sarah Wilgrub, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>